Um, we've been working our way through uh, 1 Corinthians 11, and uh, we've come to the passage, or our, through 1 Corinthians for that matter, we've come to the passage here which speaks about the Lord's Supper today. And so oftentimes when we will, we will reorder our service so that we consider the Scripture and God's truth ahead of the Lord's Supper to, to help us um, as we consider his, uh, consider the Lord's Supper. Um, one of the things that I have uh, started not taking for granted is my strength. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, last year I uh, had shoulder surgery and couldn't mow my own lawn, couldn't do some of those kinds of things. And uh, this year, I'm thankful to have gotten out at the last day of February to mow my lawn. <laughs> yeah, I'm that guy on the block that has uh, the lawn that's, uh, that's mowed the first. And, uh, but, you know, I used to be able to do yard work all day long and just kind of be tired and get up the next day and go after it. And now... Man, about a half a day's worth of yard work, and I'm kind of wiped out. And I, I, I don't take my strength for granted anymore. I, uh, I miss the good old days <laughs> when uh, my get up and go could actually do that. It's easy to take some things for granted when they're just common and they're around all the time. And sometimes the Lord's Supper can become common. It can, it's here, we do it every month, and uh, you know, there, there's nothing special about the timing on that, but, but God wants us to really take this seriously. And so he gave us this, uh, this second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he lays out in some pretty, pretty uh, clear and strong language um, how we need to take this seriously as we come to the Lord's table. Uh, please follow as I read from 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, it's always important when you see a therefore to realize that what's coming next is vitally connected to what just came before it. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. 
Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. Taking the Lord's Supper seriously requires understanding its purpose. Um, it's become fashionable in the evangelical world to have worship activities that people participate in almost just for the purpose of participation. And if we don't understand the specific purpose of the Lord's Supper, we may not take it in the way that God intends for us to take it. And the first and most important element in that is this. The Lord's Supper is a memorial, not a sacrament. The purpose Jesus gave for the bread and the cup is remembrance. It is a reminder, a refocusing, a visible, tangible way to think about him. And yet there are many churches which refer to the Lord's Supper as a sacrament. And the word sacrament means is a the word sacrament means a means of obtaining grace. The ultimate, uh, the, the most extreme view of this would be from the Catholic Church, which believes that when the priest blesses the bread and the juice, that they become, in a spiritual sense, the body and blood of Christ. And that by receiving them, you receive Christ into yourself in an aspect of salvation. The word sacrament, you know, from the word sacred, means I'm going to do this so I will get my salvation. The Catholic Church declares that this is how the life of Christ is, quote, dispensed to us. That is, you receive Christ by taking communion. And of course, in the Catholic tradition, there are other things that you do as well to, uh, to merit that grace. The Lord never expressed that kind of thought about this activity. And in fact, when it comes to the idea of how do I get salvation, Christ was very clear about that in this verse that that is quite familiar to us, and a couple of verses that follow it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The path to everlasting life is to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that he took on a human body, that he suffered and died, was buried and rose again. The person who believes that has the grace of God conveyed to them. Our belief is how God's grace is conveyed. But in case that one verse wasn't clear, Jesus goes on. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, class, which, verse, which word is repeated in that text? Could Jesus or me have been more clear? Okay, And this is, this is like one of Jesus' first significant messages to a man who came to him who was a religious man of the Old Testament variety who came to him and said, 
tell me about your message. And this is what he said. He went right to the heart of it. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And we're born again through faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul made this even more clear in in other verses that we're well familiar with. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not through a physical act. That is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not of works, lest anyone should boast. I, I, I can't quite imagine it, but I suppose someone could could come into God's presence in heaven and stand at the pearly gates and say, look, I had communion every day of my life. I deserve to be here. You know, that's why they have a communion service or a Eucharist, as they would call it, every day of the week. Okay? I, I, I could sit at this table till I die. And if I don't have faith in Christ as my Savior, it does me no good whatsoever. In the Lord's Supper, you do not gain salvation by receiving the body and blood of Christ. You do not maintain salvation as though you are a car with a gas tank that needs to be filled regularly or an electric vehicle that needs to be charged all the time. You do not become more holy. Now, let me be careful here. Is this an act of obedience and righteousness to Christ? Yes, it is. Is it a righteous thing to do? Yes, it is. But you don't get more saved. You don't get more of Christ by coming to worship him. You honor him more by coming to worship him. And that is exactly what this is about. You worship Jesus by remembering him as you eat this bread and drink this juice, as you also do when you sing to him, when you pray to him, when you obey him in your daily life, when you follow him in baptism. His command of baptism is just the same as his command to to remember him through the Lord's Supper. They are all, when we obey God, we worship God, and that is what he wants. So taking the Lord's Supper seriously requires understanding its purpose. Secondly, taking the Lord's Supper seriously requires a knowledge of the sacrifice of Christ. And that's, that's summarized for us here in this passage. Look at verse 24. Jesus said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken or given for you. Do it in remembrance of me. Uh, He said that with the bread, and then with the cup, he said, this is my blood. Uh, When the, the, the King James translation and the New King James, which I'm reading from, both uh, follow this, uh, this pattern of saying, this is my body which is broken for you. And we need to understand that that, that is not uh, what the Gospels record. And uh, it, we have a, a fairly firm understanding that as the Scripture was copied, occasionally somebody would insert a word in, in one copy of the Scripture that wasn't in other copies. And they did that at times because they thought it would make it better. And this is one of those cases where it clearly doesn't make it better. In fact, we understand from this recording of John 
we understand uh, why that this should read, this is my body for you, not that it was broken for you. Therefore, because it was the preparation day when Jesus was on the cross, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a, a special Sabbath, a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and they saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And as we mentioned on Good Friday, um, they would, the person on the cross died from asphyxiation. They would go like this and not be able to push themselves up because of the pain, and so they couldn't breathe. And they would hang there for a long time, and to speed up their death, they would break their legs so they really couldn't push themselves up, and they would die much more quickly. When they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. Jesus died of his own will. He said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, in it, and he gave it up and died. Nobody, nobody took his life from him. He gave it willingly. And so they did not break his legs. Now look what John says. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen, this is John speaking of himself in the third person, and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. Why were the bones of Christ not broken? Why was his body not broken? As somebody inserted here, they probably looked at him breaking the bread and thought it belonged in there. His body was not broken because the prophecy said his body would not be broken. None of his bones were broken. John is quoting from Psalm 2430. But we also note uh, this from the Psalms. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Ooh. You ever had a bone that's out of joint? That's a painful thing. When they drove the nails into his hands, the nails went between the bones. So they didn't break the bones, but, but uh, he certainly suffered greatly. Yes, it's a gruesome thing. And as I said on Good Friday, it's the doctrine we don't like to talk about because it's so gruesome. And yet Jesus said, I want you to remember that my body, as it simply should state, was given for you. There is a sense in which Christ's entire human existence was done for us. It was humiliating. The, the human existence of Christ was humiliating compared with the glory of heaven, and it included the struggles of human existence in a primitive level of human comfort. If Jesus came today and lived in a five-star hotel with a butler and a concierge, and was chauffeur-driven around and flew in a helicopter to the distant engagements and in a plane like Air Force One to the rest of the world, it still would be a humiliating existence compared to the glory of heaven. 
See, we look at our human existence and, and we look at somebody who's important and rich and go, wow, what a, what a way to live. And, and, and for the God of all eternity to, to limit the use of his divinity and take on the body of someone he created was a humiliating thing. He left the glory of heaven and took on the humility of this life. So all of his life was, was a gift to us, was a sacrifice to us. And then, of course, coming up to and including the cross, he had all of those physical sufferings. He was slapped, his beard was pulled out, crown of thorns put on his head, he was whipped with the terrible cat of nine tails, all of those things, and then nailed on the cross. And Jesus said, when you come here and pick up this piece of bread, I want you to stop and think about the fact that I went through hell on earth. I want you to think about that. The cup reminds us of the death that he experienced for us. The word cup here, if you notice that, he doesn't say juice, he doesn't say wine, he doesn't say grapes, he says the cup. Because it's more, he, he's not just speaking of, 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 of this literal cup that we drink out of, he's talking about the whole experience uh, in verse 25. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink. I think the word cup clearly reminds us of this event. He came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. This is Jesus before the cross, and he knows what's coming. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. And that cup is really summarized here in Matthew 27. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. While Christ was on the cross, God poured out all of our sin onto him. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He experienced all of the punishment for all of our sin. That's what the cup represents which includes that punishment and his death. The cup reminds us of his death, the creator of life dying. But then the cup also reminds us of one more thing. It reminds us of what cup Christ gives us. Look at verse 25. It's a little piece of this that we don't talk about a lot. It's, it's a little complicated, but not much. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant. In other words, he, he doesn't just say, my death brought you salvation. He says, this cup represents my blood that was shed 
to get you the new covenant. What is the new covenant? Hebrews chapter 8 and uh, a number of things in the book of Hebrews talk about the Old Testament. The word testament is equivalent to the word covenant. The old covenant God made with man had, had certain restrictions and certain blessings. And then we read this in Hebrews 8. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after these days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In the Old Testament, people were not born again. They were believers. They went to paradise when they died. But until Christ died on the cross, the sin could not be removed and the life of God could not be infused into those people. And so they went to paradise and they waited until Christ died and then their sins were removed and and then they went into the presence of God. For us going forward from the time of Christ, when we believe in Christ... We immediately get those benefits of this new covenant. The old covenant, you can read all of that in the Old Testament. All of those rules, all of those things they were to obey if they had faith in God. But there wasn't a brand new heart put within them. And the new covenant is what God said to them, Someday I am going to make it possible that you can have a new heart. That's what we call being born again. And a covenant is a binding contract. And Jesus said that this new covenant was made in his blood. And when we put this together, we come up with this. Because Christ paid our sin debt with his blood, that is, with his death, God is able to offer us the new covenant which includes the forgiveness of sin and the creation of a new life in Christ. We might say Christ signed the new covenant in his own blood. If you've ever signed real estate papers, you get this big stack, sign here, sign here, sign here, sign here. When you're all done, it's a binding contract. Jesus signed the contract between God and man. And the contract is this. If you will believe in me, I I will forgive your sins. If you will believe in Christ, God will forgive your sins. It is a binding agreement. It is not a hope so. It is not a maybe. It It is not something we wonder about. It is a contract God has made with us. And he says, when we come here... And we receive this cup. We remember the cup of the Lord's suffering. And we remember that our salvation was bought, paid for, signed, sealed, and delivered by Jesus Christ himself through his death. And so taking the Lord's Supper seriously requires understanding its purpose and requires a knowledge of the sacrifice of Christ, it also requires introspection. Look at verse 27. Therefore, because, this is to remember Christ, because 
We're remembering his suffering in his body and his death that brought us new life. Because of all of that, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and then let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We must be worthy in order to worship. Now, I understand the arrogance of that statement. The arrogance of somebody saying, I am worthy to take the Lord's Supper. It sounds like an arrogant statement. And it would be if Christ, if God didn't say, I want you to be worthy when you come, and here's how to be worthy. So I'm not worthy in and of myself. I can only be worthy if I follow God's requirement that makes me worthy. And so we understand two primary things in this worthiness. We must be worthy of worship, and worthiness begins at salvation. Worthiness begins at salvation. This is what we might call the positional or you have the, the, the right to come. There's another aspect of worthiness. We'll talk about it in a minute. A, a passage like Hebrews 10, I believe, speaks of this. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, and that's a reference to coming into the presence of God, coming into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, we have boldness to come into God's presence because of the blood of Jesus. Okay. I have no worthiness. Um, I have no worthiness apart from Christ. Because I'm a pastor, many times over the years, people who don't know the Lord will come to me and want me to pray for something, and they'll say something like this, you know, because you got a connection to the man upstairs, okay? Now, they're right in this sense. I do have a connection to the man upstairs. But they're wrong in this sense. My connection isn't any more special than anybody else's. They are right that I'm connected and they aren't because they're not believers in Christ, when I believe in Christ as my Savior, I get boldness to enter into the Holy of Holies because of the blood of Jesus. The imagery here is going all the way back to the Old Testament. Do you remember that God set up this whole system of worship and there was a, there was a, uh, a big, uh, originally a tent and then there was a building and there were several layers to this and uh, you know, the priest would go in and uh, do certain things, but there was this inner chamber called the Holy of Holies. And what did the priest have to have before he went in? What? He had to have the blood of the sacrifice, and he carried the blood into and sprinkled it on the altar. And the imagery is the same for us. I get to go into the Holy of Holies, the real Holy of Holies, that is the presence of God, not a physical place, but a spiritual place where I can come, I can come spiritually face to face with God and talk with him because I'm, 
I'm, I'm spiritually carrying the blood of Christ with me. I am covered with his blood in God's eyes, and so I am worthy to come in because of that. Now, let me be very practical to our time here today. If you don't feel worthy, you may not be worthy. Now, I'm not reducing this to a feeling. Here's what I'm saying. Romans chapter 8 says that when we have believed in Christ as our Savior, that the Holy Spirit comes into us, and the Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God. And so when I come to this table today, I have no doubt in my mind that I know Christ as my Savior, that God is my Father, and that I am worthy to be here based on my salvation. I have no doubt whatsoever. Again, not based on me, based on the Scripture and what the Holy Spirit is witnessing in my heart. And if you really don't have that, then that is what you need to do, not take this supper. That you need to come to, in faith to Christ. Worthiness begins at salvation. When you believe in Christ, the blood of Christ is applied to you, and you are worthy to come. But there's one more element to worthiness, and, and that is this. Worthiness is maintained by confession, and I'll call that practical worthiness. When we accept Christ as Savior, we get a position of being a child of God. It's like we, we've got our, uh, you know, our license, and, and it's, it's legal for us to be here. But there's one more element, and he talks about that here in this passage. Verse 28, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. You see, he's talking to Christian people here. They have already gotten their, their relationship with God squared away, but there's another issue that comes to bear with worthiness, and that is my day-to-day -day Christian life. Before I was a Christian, I was a sinner. I was not worthy to come to the Lord's table. When I believed in Christ as my Savior, I became worthy by the blood of Christ to come to the table, but in my daily walk with the Lord, if I choose to live in sin and let sin remain in me, I lose that worthiness. I don't lose my salvation, but in God's eyes, I'm coming to the table with sin on my hands. Hebrews 10 helps us with this a little bit. Therefore, brethren, he goes on, we have boldness to come in by the blood of Christ. Now, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to the presence of God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. The question you need to ask, Christian, person who has believed in Christ, the question you need to ask is, are you coming to the table with a true heart? 
And the true heart literally means unconcealed. When I, uh, when I buy a plane ticket to go somewhere on Delta Airlines, they have my personal information, including my middle name and my uh, uh, birth date. And they can do a, a rudimentary background check on me and try to discern whether or not I am a terrorist. Okay? And because of that, um, I'm, I'm, I, I don't go all the way to the front of the line like the people with the special cards do, but I can leave my shoes on and a couple of other things. And so, you know, I don't have to completely strip naked to go through the security check. And so this, this makes me all excited, you see. And so, and then I'm walking up and, uh, you know, if you have metal in your shoes, you've got to take them off too. But then I say, I have metal in both my knees. And then all bets are off. You've got to go through the scanner. Okay. And, and uh, you can't have anything in your pockets. Doesn't matter what it is, because if you have something in your pocket, when you get on the other side, you're going to have to empty it out and show them exactly what's there. And they're going to feel and they're going to find whatever it is. You have to be... When you go through the scanner, they see everything, okay? Not your anatomy, but anything you're carrying. There's no use trying to conceal it because they see it. When you come to this table, God sees everything. Sometimes we still try to conceal, sort of like, well, I, I really don't want to confess that sin and yet God still will see it. And what God wants, what he asks for when we come into his presence, that we be completely open and, and, and with nothing concealed, our hearts true before him. And uh, yeah, John MacArthur offered a, a stunning analogy of this when he said, to trample our country's flag is not to dishonor a piece of cloth, but to dishonor the country it represents. To come unworthily to communion does not simply dishonor the ceremony, it dishonors the one whose honor is celebrated. And so we need to come with our hearts true and right before him. And that's why taking the Lord's Supper seriously requires understanding God's love for his son. God loves his son so much that he doesn't want you to not take him seriously. Look at verse 29. If you eat and drink, if you allow sin in your life to stay, you are unworthy. And if you eat and drink in that manner, you will bring judgment on yourself because you have not discerned the Lord's body. In other words, you have not understood this is about honoring the Lord and his body, not just some religious activity. For this reason, verse 30, many are weak and sick and many sleep. In, uh, in verse 29, I believe the King James uses the word damnation, and it should be the word uh, chastening that's used there. And, it, and it's a reference to us. It refers us really to Hebrews 12. My son, don't despise the chastening. 
That word could mean uh, training and, and discipline, everything that helps a child to grow up. And God uses it to mean that sometimes he causes circumstances in our life to get us to turn and do the right thing. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. What this scripture tells us here is, if you come to the table, a Christian who is living in sin, God may choose to chasten you, that is to bring a circumstance into your life that causes you to stop and go, oh, wait a minute, I'm taking God for granted here. And in particular, he uses the words in verse 30, weak and sick and asleep. Do you know that the word sleep then is a, is a synonym to, to die? Now, I can't personally attest to drastic results of people coming in an unworthy manner, but I knew a, an older pastor who said, who said to me once, I hate to hear the hospital reports on the Monday morning after communion. Okay. And if you're thinking, Pastor Dave, you're scaring me, then I'm doing my job. This is God who says, don't you come here unworthy because God will chasten. He uses the word judge. God will judge. In other words, God will evaluate your life and say you're wrong and he'll bring chastening, not punishment as in you're going to pay for your sin, but as in hardship to get you to turn from your sin. That's what chastening is. God's discipline, the discipline of, of God is not punitive, but formative and restorative. And so how do we avoid this? Look at verse 28. We avoid it by examining ourselves and then eating. We avoid it by self-examination. And the key element in that is confessing our sin. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. None of us lives a perfect life, including me. And while these elements are being passed, I'm thinking about my life, and I'm asking God if there's any sin I have failed to confess. I want to take this seriously just like I want you to take this seriously. When we come into relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as a believer in Christ, we have a, a free and open interchange between us and God. We know God and he knows us and, and uh, perhaps like Adam would talk with God in the cool of the evening before he sinned, we walk through our life aware of God, we talk to him in prayer, we sense his leading through the Holy Spirit and we enjoy our Christian life. But when we sin, a cloud comes into our relationship 
It doesn't mean we're not the child of God, but it means there is, there is a distance, there is a block, and we don't have the free interchange, he and I. And when I confess my sin, that cloud is removed. Without doubt, that, that confession starts at, at salvation. When I confess I am a sinner and I cannot save myself, and I believe in Jesus as my Savior, but then that confession needs to continue as we daily discover things that we have done that we ought not to have done. Harry Ironside, a famous uh, preacher of years ago, commented this way, observe that it does not say, let a man examine himself and then let him refrain from participating. But, let a man examine himself and then let him eat. No matter what he sees in himself of that which is evil and un unholy, if he judges himself before God and confesses his unholiness, he is in a state of soul where he is free to participate. I've known Christians in the past who said, well, I have sin in my life, so I'm not going to take communion as though somehow that lives up to what God wants. I would heartily agree with you that if you are unwilling to confess your sin, you should not partake of this. But could I suggest that your unwillingness to confess and partake as Christ commanded is itself another sin that needs to be confessed? Jesus himself said, do this in remembrance of me. It's not just do it in remembrance, but it's do it. And he wants us to remember him. He wants us to take it seriously. He wants us to have an open heart and soul, be right with God, and to receive this and to rejoice in worship. Uh, I've told you before how I, I meditate on some passages of Scripture while I'm working out uh, on the elliptical train or something to keep my mind busy. And one of those passages is James chapter 3. James chapter 3 says, My brethren, let not many of us be teachers, knowing that we shall receive the stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If any does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to control his whole body. And the passage goes on from there. But I've meditated on that many times. And uh, last week, you heard an example of me not controlling my mouth, but saying something that was funny, but not godly. As I spoke about hell in a way that was flippant. And so I sent out a note and apologized for that. And, and uh, I want to take seriously the things that God takes seriously. And uh, I, I hope what you learned by my note was, I'm still a work in progress. And I hope you are too. And I hope you will take this part of God's word seriously today and use the Lord's Supper always 
as a moment to just make sure you're walking close with the Lord with an open communication and come with a joyful heart to enjoy and to bless the Savior who has blessed you so much. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for punishing Christ and not us. We didn't deserve that. We don't deserve it. We don't rejoice in his sufferings except that they brought us salvation. So we thank you for that. And we just ask you to give us a spirit of worship, of coming to this table with a sincere and open heart and honoring you and your son for what you have done in us. Jesus, may you be honored by our worship today. I pray in Christ's name, amen.